Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about whisky. We'll meet a disruptive founder who caught the whisky bug and started her own distillery to attract a more diverse audience, to transform the perception of the drink, in short, to reimagine Scottish whisky production in a truly environmentally conscious way. The lack of focus on sustainability really struck me and I thought, you know, someone needs to do something about this. And that's really where it all started. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Ten years ago, Annabel Thomas left her job to pursue her ambition of changing the way the world thinks about and drinks Scottish whisky. Over the course of four years, she raised funds to establish a distillery from the ground up, one that prioritises sustainable production. Her dream of creating whisky using organic barley and 100% renewable energy was realised when the distillery kicked off its first batch production in 2017. Now a well-established and highly respected brand, McNeon is the first UK distillery with net zero carbon emissions powered by renewables and using 100% recycled glass bottles. McNeon became a certified B Corp last year, recognition of the brand's environmental impact. Annabelle stopped by Midori House and began by reflecting on the start of her journey, what she was thinking a decade ago when she quit her job to pursue her passion. I wasn't thinking about the full 10 years, let's put it that way. What was important at the time, I wanted to, we had this family dream to set up a whiskey distillery. It's on my parents' farm. It's in some old disused farm buildings. And that was where it all started. But before I quit my job, I went to do some research, said, look, I'll write the business plan because otherwise we're just going to talk about this and never do it. And I went to visit a few distilleries and it really struck me when I did that. They were very traditionally focused, doing things the way they'd always been done, which is not a problem in a traditional industry, but there was no one doing anything else. And in particular, the lack of focus on sustainability really struck me. And I thought someone needs to do something about this. And that's really where it all started. Now tell me, were you then one of these entrepreneurial characters? Because I'm sure there's lots of people who have those conversations for 20, 30, 40 years. They never go anywhere. Something holds back most people. What didn't hold you back? Was it something that you did have? Was it a characteristic that you've always displayed in your previous life? I actually don't think of myself as very entrepreneurial. I went to university. I went into strategy consulting. It's quite a kind of bog standard post-university city type career. I did spend some time working at Innocent Drinks, the smoothie company, which is a very entrepreneurial culture and it produces a lot of entrepreneurs. So I think that was definitely inspiring. I didn't see it as very a risky step at the time either because I don't know what I was thinking, but I sort of thought I'd do it for two years and then it would run itself or something crazy. But I definitely also, I like to think that I don't want to have any regrets in life. And I definitely thought, when will I get the chance to do this again? Well, never. So... I just didn't think about it too much. (laughs) I'm not wholly convinced by the I'm not an entrepreneur story. It doesn't fit with my understanding of what's happened subsequently, but maybe we'll... Maybe that's just in my head, you know. I don't think Mm. of myself as an entrepreneurial person, but then what the hell is an entrepreneurial person? I mean... Don't ask me. I should be providing answers on this programme called The Entrepreneurs. (laughs) So tell me on on that point, though, about baking in then sustainable practice and a, a B Corp. We know that is a hard one accolade or certification, whatever you want to call it. So you're obviously doing the right things. You wanted to bake that in. On this other point, though, about, as I said, we're not being 
pejorative talking about traditionalism, but the other sort of more innovative things that you have brought to bear here, a female-led business, lots of brilliant female leaders involved. Was that another of the core values that you were determined to integrate into the that business plan that you drafted right from the beginning? The innovative side, yes, but the female side honestly didn't even cross my mind. I was very keen that as a business we had a kind of philosophy of what if we could try this, what would happen. That's more from a liquid point of view and a production point of view. The female side of things, honestly, I don't think anyone thought of it until about 2016 when we were starting to actually think about going public with what we were doing. And then people start making comments about, oh, but you're a woman in whiskey house. That I'm like, mm, it's fine. <laughs> but I do think now reflecting on it, this wasn't conscious at the time, it gives you a different way of thinking. And I think that is a real asset. And it's clearly been of great advantage to the business as it's grown. Let's just look back. We were chatting just before we started the the, the taping about when you said, oh, oh, a couple of years, see what happens. Four years or so, wasn't it? The sort of development story, which we know was not perhaps what you were expecting. Roll the clock back again. Talk about the mechanics of that period, because it's a journey, I guess, of discovery, of horror, of delight in equal measure. So many components to research. What kinds of things were going on during that close to half decade development story? Well, basically it was two phases. The first phase of two years was fundraising and the second phase was physically building the distillery. The first phase of fundraising was probably the toughest mental challenge I've done because it's hard to raise money for a business anyway. It was much harder in 2013, I think, than it is now because the government incentives have grown and so on. But it's particularly hard to raise money for a whiskey distillery because you're looking at massive upfront capex (laughs) and then a long period where you can't yet sell anything because it's still maturing. So the upfront costs are massive, which is very risky from an investor's point of view. You know, that's how it is. I think we approached over 800 investors and ended up with 45. So the perseverance to keep going and keep talking to the next one and keep chasing the last one and all the rest of it was pretty awful. But we got there. We found our cornerstone investor. And I think that's key. Someone who believed in the business enough to put in a significant amount of money. And then I think that helps the smaller investors to feel the confidence to put their amounts in. So we eventually got there in mid-2015. And then came the second hardest bit, which was actually building it. It was a complicated build anyway, because it's in an old building. And everyone knows old buildings are difficult. We're then trying to put modern equipment into an old building and we're trying to do it in one of the remotest bits of the UK where if you've got the wrong size screw or whatever it is it's like a three-hour round trip to a hardware shop. (laughs) Finding the right contractor was particularly difficult there was actually a stage after we'd raised the money so like my job was now to get this thing built and we were down to one contractor who would do it not that they knew this at the time. And <laughs> there was some kerfuffle amongst the kind of advisory team or, you know, architect, engineer types, which got back to this one contractor and it spooked them and they pulled out. So then I was left with no one to build the distillery. We'd been sitting on all millions of pounds for months needing to be invested, basically. So I read How to Win Friends and Influence People in a Day. I got on a train to Glasgow and the next day I managed to persuade them to get back on the project. That does sound scary and high stakes. With that fundraising round, did you find that you got to a point where you would speak to people who either got it straight away? I'm interested in that process. Did you have to win people around or did you manage to find a bit of a a recipe for talking to people that meant, like with your cornerstone investor, someone who's like, 
I like it. Did you get to that point of that shorthand or did or did that never did that never really arrive? I don't think we ever I mean I think with our cornerstone investor everything came together, location, philosophy, everything just slotted into place, but I always reflect on that fundraising process in the context of the world we're in now and sustainability. If you go and talk to investors about sustainability now, it's like massive tick, 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 tick. It's all they're looking for. The arguments we had about it at the time, whether it was worth investing in this very expensive biomass boiler to fuel the distillery, people were really focused on the numbers. Carbon just didn't feature in any of those discussions. And I think that's a really interesting in less than a decade, how much the world has moved on in that sense. Well, that's really reassuring in a way, isn't it? Yes. Because a lot of the conversations I have is about, you know, will we ever get there? How do we increase the required pace of change? And that feels like the whole discourse has shifted in, in 10 years. We can be pretty optimistic then about I that. I agree. And I think it's interesting because if we were raising money now, you go to all of these green investment funds. They just literally didn't exist at the time. Fascinating, like, process. So well, just remind us about that, because as you say, it's not just about a product that is more sustainable. It was the whole operation. You were very much ahead of the curve in terms of taking this holistic approach right down to renewable energy. You've already explained it was difficult conversations. Could you find, you said already, even finding contractors to start the build for, for these more specialist things? Were there any? Did you almost have to start subsets of new industries just to find the people to do the work? To some extent, yes, or at least we had to take big risks. So on the biomass boiler, which is the kind of main energy source, that was okay. A couple have been installed in Scotland. We found the right contractor to do it, and that's the kind of key. It wasn't without its challenges. We had to get it all the way from Austria and Germany because the industry to produce steam from biomass just doesn't exist in the UK. And, you know, getting German trucks down a single track road in Scotland (laughs) was interesting. But it was kind of on the other elements, like water, for example. I really didn't want to use a cooling tower, which uses lots of energy and chemicals for our cooling water, which is like most of the water usage in the distillery. And we ended up digging a pond and we just recycled this water through the pond, cool it in the pond, use it again. And the engineers were like, we can't support this. We can't measure the cooling capacity of a pond And so we don't know whether it's going to be enough or not. So we just kind of had to say, well, we think it will be. Let's do it and hope and plan some contingencies if it doesn't. But basically just take the risk. Engineers don't like that kind of... No, uncertainty, I know. Very different risk appetites. (laughs) Exactly. Listen, let's talk about the product, the hero, whiskey. Why was this broiling around in your head? The scene is set in Scotland, in in rural Scotland, and the cliches are there about Scotch whiskey and whatever. How did you go about calibrating this passion and turning that into something that was going to be a measurably brilliant product? I don't think I did it that scientifically. I think I felt that looking at all of the Scotch brands out there, they seem to be talking to a very one-dimensional consumer, which is the traditional whiskey consumer, older, white, male. And I felt like I had a pretty good grip on what younger consumers were looking for being one myself (laughs) but also having worked at Innocent who were very much also targeting that same consumer and I think I just felt that if I applied what I valued as a consumer to the Scotch business that would work and that's basically what I did. And how much then Annabelle was about not just rethinking the product but rethinking the way to consume the product because that's in in terms of whiskey's marketing Massive. existence that's a huge yes, part of I it. I think that's a huge part of it. It's not just about the way to consume it, it's also the way it's communicated. Just really small things like 
what pictures you have on your website and your Instagram page and all of that kind of outward facing stuff in the world that shows a broader spectrum of people drinking whiskey, I think is really important. Because otherwise, if we keep on with the current state of being, which is too many whiskey brands, either not showing anyone consuming it because they're just showing boring old Scottish pictures or showing the kind of traditional consumer drinking it, we're not going to bring new people into the whisky category, which will be a shame for both those people to be missing out on a wonderful drink, but also for the whisky category as a whole. So I think taking that broader approach is really important. And I guess one of the other interesting balances to strike is to win and bring in and retain that new audience, but also because there's pride at stake and you're a connoisseur of the product, you want to also convince some of those established and maybe quite entrenched consumers to to jump to you for them to also take a risk so you you don't want to alienate i guess the, your your established base so that's another plate to spin and that has been actually a really interesting learning journey for us and i think we always knew it was going to be hard to bring in a new consumer to the category and i think that's been a lot harder than i expected it's a super long-term thing and it takes a lot of investment and so on but what's interesting is that the existing base of whiskey drinkers have like embraced sustainability and all the things we stand for with open arms, which is cool and also not what I expected. So it's a little bit of swings and roundabouts there. Let's talk about product then. So you mentioned obviously there's this long tail because you have to distill the product. It's a waiting game. How much jeopardy is there? Or had you got to the point where you were very confident that your end product insofar as any distiller of anything, but particularly whiskey, can be sure about what's going to be in the barrel at the end kind of thing. What was that moment like? Well, or is it, it, in fact, is it not really a moment, is it? It's, it's not it's, really it's a, a moment, it's a, it's a journey. And I think, so we were very well advised. We had a wonderful master distiller called Dr. Jim Swan, who had done a lot of work with younger distilleries and who weren't just working with 20 to 20 year old stock that they could play with. So we felt very well advised on that. Although... Very sadly, Jim Swan died about a month before we did our first distillation. So he didn't see us through the second half of the journey. But his view, and I think this is completely right, is if you make a great spirit and you put it in great barrels, you're going to get great whiskey. So as soon as you've made any spirit, you can taste it and test it and all the rest of it. And you know it tastes good. And then if you know you're buying good barrels, you're in a pretty good place. But then you can constantly taste it as you go. And seeing the evolution of different types of barrels, like I could talk to you for hours about that. And we're still on that journey. You know, our whiskey is still evolving in barrels, which is a, it's fun. When I was younger, I got really interested in, you know, the old Cooper's trade, more from the sort of beer point of view. There'll be some aficionados out there who, who want to know. I want to know. What was that process then? Because there's obviously so many different things. You source them from here. Have they already had their past life in wine or other deployments? What was that bit of the adventure like? Well, it's kind of twofold. We have our core barrels that we use, which are ex-bourbon, so they come from the States. So we just have a great broker in the States who sources really good quality barrels for us. And then we have these barrels called shaved, toasted and recharred red wine barrels, so STRs we call them, which actually Jim Swan, our master distiller, kind of developed with a Cooper winemaker in Spain. So that was fun, understanding that process and sourcing them. And then we have a very small number of the kind of traditional sherry butts. And then outside of that, we have the barrels Jim Swan definitely wouldn't have approved of. They've had all sorts of different things in them beforehand. So, you know, it could be a tequila barrel, it could be a rye barrel. So you've got lots of different things to play with, how the barrel's been treated, like recharring, for example, but also what its previous inhabitant was. I love that. And it sort of, again, it gives, well, like, it doesn't give the light, it sort of proves the global relevance of a brand because we've also spoken before another occasion about the scottishness the britishness the anywhere in the worldness and you're talking about barrels then that are shipped in from presumably i don't know tennessee or somewhere coming from spain all these different things it is 
an authentically Scottish product, but it's also an international product. That's kind of something additionally lovely about it. Definitely. And it's a real, um, I think it's actually a bit of a contradiction in Scotch because Scotland has this incredible reputation for Scotch. We happen to use Scottish barley, but a lot of distilleries don't because there's not enough barley grown in Scotland to fuel the whole whiskey industry. Then you have Scottish water. Well, that doesn't really make any difference, if we're honest. And then the barrels, which actually impart a lot of flavour, especially if you're thinking about older whiskies, generally don't come from Scotland. They come from all over the place. And it's a real contradiction, but it also means it keeps it interesting, I think. OK, let's roll the clock forwards to... You've mentioned there are not, there's no guarantees, but you are keeping across this process. You're on this journey. Confidence growing as you get towards, you know, the sort of big reveal. As you tick down to that first batch, what is in your head? Probably just relief. <laughs> You're thinking, planning a, an extended vacation, I imagine. But talk a bit about that that countdown and then what happened? Well, the main worry I had at the time was how we were going to actually produce the first batch because, so we're a single malt, which means all of the whiskey has come from one distillery, but it comes from multiple barrels generally, unless it's a single cast release. But there is a real expertise and art to combining the barrels in the right way to make a kind of rounded holistic product because all barrels are slightly different. They've been in a different position in the warehouse, the original barrel's different, whatever. And Jim Swan should have been our blender for this, what was called a blender, and he was no longer with us. And I, I really didn't have any solutions for this. So I was kind of, you could see 2020 approaching when the whiskey would come of age and I didn't have any solutions anyway. We started recruiting our commercial team that would help us bring the product to market. And in the process, we recruited an on-trade brand ambassador, a guy called Matt. He's an ex-bartender. He wanted to move out of bartending. He loved what we did. It all seemed to come together well. So this was in early 2020. And then what happened... COVID hit. So A, he's got no bars to sell to. And B, we're now launching in COVID. So we literally had to rip up our marketing plan. The benefit of this is that Matt actually has an incredible palette and nose and he became our blender. So it all kind of worked out nicely in that sense. But it was a massive unknown launching in COVID. You know, the whole traditional spirits launch plan would be get people to try it, which means getting in bars, getting it to events. And Find all the of this people. stuff was shut. And they weren't there. Well, tell us about that then. So you have to pivot. I guess the story doesn't change, but your approach to telling it has to. What shifted? Was it about trying to then find a different, not just consumer, but promoter, partners in the trade? Did you have to change? There was no playbook because we'd never been in a situation like that. So it's another unknown. What? How did it go? Because obviously the, the net result was supremely successful. But tell us a little bit about yeah. the mechanics of it. I mean, I think it was a combination of luck and good planning, as these things always are. We had the advantage of being a very young business and could basically pivot on the spot. We didn't have a playbook we were working to. So we immediately went very digital, pushed our website, went big on social media. But I also had this really nagging feeling that launching a £60 whiskey in the middle of COVID was a bit off because we were in a serious crisis and who needs a £60 whiskey? So we decided to launch or decided to auction the first 10 bottles for charity. And those were going to support sustainability charities and hospitality charities because the hospitality industry was obviously in crisis. And it just went bananas. And the first bottle went for £41,000. And suddenly that was our job done and we were on the whiskey map. And because at the same time everyone was drinking at home, everyone will remember that in COVID, like buying a lot of stuff online and making cocktails or whatever at home, we managed to ride on that wave pretty well and it actually set us up really well. So it all worked out, but it was a pretty um, yeah, hair-raising <laughs> start to the year. So I guess there's something 
amazing it's a bit like winemaking there's all these variables you know oh bad season there's a drought that's it tear up the tear up the game plan there's something amazing about the ongoing serendipity of what may work or not how does that shape your planning then because you've got to have this big picture you've got to look long term but there's so many different variables so what is that like as you go from sort of batch to batch how do you make sense of all of those often conflicting pressures that are acting on the business yeah it's really hard and I think especially in a whiskey business where you're thinking so long term like you know Matt our blender and I have to think both about what we want to have in 10 years time but also what we're going to put into the next batch right now and it does feel like a constant juggling act and also just from a bigger picture business point of view kind of want to deliver the volumes that we need now whilst also building the business in the right way in the long term like yeah we can deliver volumes now by just discounting or something but that's obviously not the right thing in the long term so it is a constant balancing act I just my way of dealing with it is just to try and keep focused on the long term rather than get too distracted by the conflicting pressures that hit of the you from the day now. to day. I would say what's interesting, you have a broadly sort of disruptive founding philosophy and a, a curiosity, a, an eagerness for experimentalism in all, in all aspects of the business. Once you start to get successful, though, does it become more difficult to retain an experimental philosophy? Because you know what works. So do you, is, that, is that about continuing to force yourself, your colleagues, when you have those conversations with Matt, even about process? Is it harder to keep that what if or why don't we attitude once you have something that is actually working? It's a really good question. I think if it is, we're not at that stage yet. And I think there's a few things that help that. One is actually the people you bring into the business. You've got to make sure that they fit culturally and that they're also of the view of what if, could we do this? And actually every other month in the business, we do a whiskey tasting for the whole team, mostly for fun, but also to educate everybody because I've made an effort to not recruit people only from a whiskey background because I think that also helps with this what if but as a result educating the whole team about whiskey and this tastes like this and this tastes like this so Matt leads these sessions and we ended up coming up with this idea kind of through discussion of the whiskey we were tasting last night that would be cool should we try that so I think those ideas do come through but it's also my job to make sure we nurture that culture and remain open to those questions. What's next? What's on the horizon? Obviously, you've described already the long-term preoccupations that are a necessary part of running a, a successful whiskey concern. But you have to, I guess, think about the here and now and what does 23, 24 yeah. hold in store? What, what are the exciting, the next few markers? So our focus at the moment is very much on the US. We have appointed an importer and we will launch into the US at some point this year. That is obviously a very big scotch market it's also really competitive and really complicated so it's this big prize but also really difficult to get right so most of my time is taken up thinking about that and then there's also the question of asia which will probably be the next step when where how those are the kind of questions we're trying to answer at the moment and then in parallel to that continuing our sustainability journey is critical like we've done lots of the sustainability of our own operations is fantastic but we've still got the entire of our supply chain to tackle i want to prove that that's possible to do well i was going to ask you about that because i guess with b corp status and with just a much more educated consumer you've already spoke at the top about how the discourse has moved on in 10 years now consumers will their buying intention is contingent on businesses that deliver to very exacting standards they have how do you go about doing that? Because, and also as you grow, supply chains get more complex and more international. So how do you ensure that you're not spending, because you could spend literally all of your time just doing that. That's tricky, I guess. It is tricky. And it's also tricky because a lot of the technology doesn't yet exist. For example, transport. 
massive globalised industry, we have no influence over that. But I think you've just got to pick off the things that are important that you can change and try and focus on that and make sure that we are talking to the right people who are at the kind of forefront of the technology and the thinking and that we can work with them and push them and do it in collaboration, really. It would be remiss of me not to ask about consuming the hero, the beverage itself. What is the perfect way to consume and I don't know if it would depend on which batch. Maybe pick one. Where, where am I? Who am I with? What am I doing? And how do I take the elixir on board? So obviously, however you like it. But in my view, the perfect scene would be after work, before dinner. It's a nice sunny evening, which at some point in the UK this year we might get. And you have a whiskey and soda, soda water over ice. Beautiful, long, refreshing drink. I'll certainly drink to that. Annabel Thomas there, the founder and CEO of Nicknean Whiskey Distillery. You can learn more about the brand and Annabel's story by heading to nicknean.com. That's N-C-N-E-A-N.com. And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka available every Friday. The Entrepreneurs was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to Monocle magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can also follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team, email Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye. And thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.